Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking with Barbara Palmer, who is the author with Dennis Simon of Women and Congressional Elections, A Century of Change. I hope that you enjoy the interview with Barbara. Barb, how are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to have read the book. Uh, maybe we can start off by uh, getting to know you a little bit, um, uh, where you are, where you've been, uh, where this book fits into your writing. Sure. Um, I'm an associate professor at Baldwin-Wallace University, which is um, just outside of Cleveland, Ohio. And this is the first time in my life I've ever lived in a swing state during a presidential election, so that was pretty exciting. Um, I'm also the legal studies coordinator here, and I teach classes in American government, elections, and constitutional law. And I'm really excited to be teaching a new class on women in politics in the fall. And my co-author, Dennis Simon, he's a professor at Southern Methodist University who also teaches courses on elections, um, American history and American elections, and the presidency. So it was just kind of um, – I actually met Dennis – gosh, this all started about 15 years ago. My first job up, um, when I finished grad school was at Southern Methodist University where I got to know Dennis. And um, so we started writing together 15 years ago. That's, that's great. And, you know, and the book really feels like uh, it's, it's um, a lot of work put into it. It, it feels like there's, there's a lot of research that, that sits behind it. Yeah, and, uh, and it's a true work. collaboration. Um, I know I, I feel very, very lucky because um, we've been writing together for, you know, for 15 years, and um, it just it works really well together. He's a methodological genius, and I'm the one who comes up with all the crazy stories um, and anecdotes to just sort of fill in the gap. So it, it works really well. Yeah, yeah, and I enjoyed I enjoyed the book. Um, your subtitle uh, suggests that the, the 20th century was the century of change. Before we get to that century, I wonder if you could tell us um, briefly about the pre-20th century and and what the what the landscape for women and congressional elections looked like before these major changes started to happen. Well, truthfully, the major changes really didn't start to happen until 1972. Um, and again, we saw another major change happen in 1992. Um, the very, but we, we refer to a century of change because the very first woman to ever be elected to the House was actually Jeanette Rankin, who was elected in 1916, um, which interestingly enough was before the passage of the um, 19th Amendment in 1920, constitutionally guaranteeing women the right to vote. Um, prior to that, there were, of course, women who did run. Um, most of them ran under third-party labels. Um, in fact, the very first women to run for public office did so under third-party labels. Um, in fact, most people don't know this, but the first woman to ever run for Congress was actually Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who ran in 1868. Um, she ran as an independent for a U.S. House seat in New York, and she got 24 votes. And she joked that most of them were probably from her family members. <laughs> um, but she ran, um, not so much because she thought she would win, but it was part of her uh, commitment to getting uh, women's suffrage. She wanted to show the absurdity of the fact that she could run for Congress, but she couldn't vote for herself. Um, the very first woman to ever run for U.S. Senate was a woman by the name of Mary Elizabeth Weiss, um, and she ran in Kansas as a Populist Party um, candidate, and she ran in 1893. Um, their senator had stepped down, and so she ran in a special election. Um, she didn't win, 
um, but she was the very first to run to run for Senate. Um, so there were a few women in the 19th century who did attempt to run um, and were not successful, um, but it wasn't until the early 20th century that we actually saw the first woman in the House. Um, it took a couple more years to get a woman in the Senate, and but it really wasn't until the 1970s when we really saw more than a handful of women starting to serve. And in this book, you put together a really interesting data set. Um, that allows you to, to, to talk about, you know, many candidates who people maybe never heard about. Um, I wonder if you talk just a little bit about that data set um, that you analyzed, where it came from, and what maybe some of the challenges were that you faced in trying to put together, you know, decades and decades worth of, of cases. Yeah, but it, it is quite, it, it was an adventure or an odyssey, depending on how you look at it. Um, it, it actually started kind of by accident, as I think most good research does. Um, we were, I was teaching at SMU with Dennis, and we literally ran into each other in the hallway. I was teaching a class on women in politics. He was teaching a class on elections, um, and this was 1998. And he asked me if I knew how many times um, in history we had a general election where you had two female candidates running for Senate or for House. And I said, you know, I really I have no idea. And as it turns out, there was no research on this at all. So we naively decided we were going to write a paper together for the Southern Political Science Association annual conference. And, of course, in order to count the number of times women have run against each other, you actually have to go through every single election ever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's what we started to do. Um, we got several grants from SMU uh, to support us, and we were able to hire about 10 undergrads. And we just started digging through the series America Votes, which is an incredible resource if you want any kind of data um, on any sort of uh, national elections going back all the way to 1956. It's a fantastic series, and it's one of the few sources that actually gives you the names of all the people who ran in um, House and Senate primaries, um, which is very difficult data to come by. Of course, the challenge when you're given a list of names is the gender of the person isn't always apparent necessarily. You know, what do you do if you have Chris Smith? Um, sometimes that might be male, sometimes that might be female. Um, we always joke that we have the Pat problem from SNL. Mm -hmm. And so back when we started collecting this back in 1998, um, it was not necessarily all that easy to do research on those kinds of names. It has, of course, gotten so much easier uh, because now most of the time when candidates run, um, you've got so many more online sources that you can usually find a picture or um, newspaper coverage of the primary so you can figure out the gender of the name. But back in 1998, um, we had to do a lot of research to try to figure out, to make sure that we weren't over or under counting female candidates. So that's how it started. It took us two years to put together the original data set um, going all the way back to 1956. And what that gave us was all House and Senate primary and general elections. Um, and then since then, you know, what's great is now it takes us two hours to update the, the, the data set. Um, and uh, we've supplemented it. We now have data going all the way back to 1900 on, with data on general elections. We've also created a couple of other supplemental data sets, including women who have run um, under third-party labels 
And we also have a file that has biographical information on all the women who have served in the House. I want to get back and just uh, to actually some of the data analysis that you do a little bit later, but um, one of the real enjoyable parts of this book is, is some of the, the cases that you pull out and some of these very interesting stories. And the first one that I wanted to ask you about and just have you talk just a little bit about is Margaret Chase Smith. So who is she and why is she notable and what did she do to land herself in your book? Well, Margaret Chase Smith is really interesting because she is one of the pioneers. Um, she is what, she was the first woman to serve in both the House and the Senate. Um, so that's why we think she is really important. She's also one of the longest serving women in the, um, in Congress. And so she just was one of the, you know, she, she really kind of paved the way for a lot of women and just had a really incredible career. One of the other uh, sort of real notable uh, uh, people in the book is Shirley Chisholm. Um, she builds builds on the the, the, the groundbreaking work that, that Margaret Chase Smith does a couple of decades later. Um, so, what about Shirley Chisholm? Uh, what is, how does she add to the the progress that's that's being made over this time period? Yeah, well, Shirley Chisholm was the um, the very first African American woman um, elected to the House in 1968. She wasn't the first woman of color to be elected. Um, that was Patsy Mink, who was a Democrat from Hawaii. She was first elected to the House in 1964. Um, but, and, and, but Shirley Chisholm was the first um, black woman ever elected in 1968. Um, she grew up in Brooklyn, New York. And um, the story of why she ran for Congress, I think, is just so great. Um, she, would have been, she had served in the New York uh, state legislature, um, and so she decided to run for Congress because it was a Friday night and she was home and this, some, there was a knock on her door and one of her neighbors who was in her 80s, um, was, was standing there and, you know, asked her to put her hands out and she dumped like $9 in change into, uh, Chisholm's hands and she said, that's my contribution when you run for Congress. And so every Friday night, this, little old lady neighbor would come by and give her bingo winnings to Shirley Chisholm to convince her to run for Congress. And so she eventually did, and she won. Uh, and what's also really interesting about her is she actually ran for president in 1972. Uh, she was on the ballot in 12 states and got 152 delegates at the Democratic National Convention. And the, the story, she knew she wasn't going to win the Democratic nomination, but she knew that if she stuck it out, that she could get enough delegates so that she actually played a role at the convention, and they had to pay attention to her. And that, that whole story is really remarkable. There's a wonderful documentary about her called Unbossed and Unbossed that came out in um, 2005, just shortly after her death, that tells that story of her presidential run. And it's just really, really an incredible story. 1972 is, is not just coincidental that, that her run for the nomination happens during this pivotal year, one of the two pivotal years in the book. So in 1972 and 1992 are these two years separated by 20 years, but you, you look to them as, as these real landmark years. So what made 1972 significant um, outside of Chisholm's uh, uh, unsuccessful run to the Democratic nomination? Well, I think there are a couple of interesting similarities between 1972 and 1992. Tons and tons have been written about 1992, where we, we saw, a, like, just a significant spike in the number of women running and winning. 72 was kind of the beginning of a, an, an era of real change, 
Um, but again, 1972 has some unique features as well. Um, first, it was a year after a redistricting cycle. Um, and any time that happens, you know, every 10 years, we have to redraw congressional lines to account for population. So um, any, like in 1972, 1982, 1992, um, those lines have been redrawn. And typically, you have a higher number of open seats. Um, there's a, lot, a little bit more shakeup going on because you have incumbents who are running in districts that they may not be familiar with. So those years tend to create more opportunities for new people, whether they're, you know, women or African-American or, or younger people or non-lawyers or whatever, you're going to see more opportunities in general. But also I think the issue agendas in 1992 and 1972 were um, more friendly towards women. So in 1972 you had the anti-war movement um, and lots of other issues that really got women motivated to run. You saw the same kind of thing happening in 1992, where the issue agenda was just um, friendlier to women. Um, it was all about issues that women were seen as more, uh, had more experience with, had more expertise on than men, things like education and healthcare, um, those kinds of issues. But also um, this sort of anti-corruption theme, you know, women are seen as outsiders and are seen as less corrupt because they haven't had access to power, and all of those things tend to help. But you also see in the 1970s, this is when we really begin to see changes in attitudes about women's roles. And so not only do you have these institutional opportunities through redistricting, you've got the particular unique um, issues in that election cycle. But 1972 also marks, you know, these, the beginning of some real significant changes in attitudes towards women's roles. 1992, in both centers, we see a, a spike in the number of w uh, women who are winning congressional elections for the first time. But they're not winning everywhere. Uh, they're not winning just sort of across the board in just some random fashion. There's, you find some uh, specific situations where women candidates are likely to be successful. So what, what type of district uh, are women likely, likely to be successful during these time periods? Yeah, this is one of the things that Dennis and I are the most excited about. Um, and we were really trying to figure out you know, what we call the political geography of women's success. Because as you pointed out, you know, women are not randomly distributed across the country um, in terms of where they're able to win a House seat or even a Senate seat. And so w what we were really interested in were the kinds of district-level factors that might contribute or inhibit the success of women candidates. And when we first started doing this, we really didn't know if it was going to work. Um, but, you know, if you ask any candidate, any political consultant, or any academic who studies this stuff, you know, we know that there's a profile of districts based on demographics that you can use to predict whether or not a district is going to elect a Republican or a Democrat. And so what we did is we wanted to know, well, can you use those same demographics to predict if a man or a woman is going to win a particular district? And when we first did the analysis, we had no idea what we were going to come up with. And I remember distinctly when Dennis brought me the first um, runs he did in, in SAS, and I just thought, oh, my God, this, is, this can't be right. You know, you know, have you done it this way? Have you done it this way? He's like, oh, yeah, I've run this way from Sunday. You know, there's something real here. Um, and so it was really kind of exciting to discover that, as it turns out, you can predict not only if a Democrat or a Republican will win a district, but you can use that same information to predict whether a man or a woman will win a district. 
And um, they're not necessarily the same factors as that will predict a party win. Um, what we discovered is that women of both parties are more likely to be successful in districts that are small, urban, um, kind of very upscale, very wealthy. Uh, women are women represent the wealthiest districts in the nation, um, which you would expect for Republican women, but you certainly wouldn't expect for Democratic women. Uh, but Nancy Pelosi's district is a classic example of this. You know, it's the limousine liberals. Um, and these districts are also more likely to be more racially diverse, um, have a higher percentage of immigrants, um, and which, again, you would expect for Democratic women, but certainly not for Republican women. And so there are women-friendly districts, um, was the phrase that we coined. And so what we did is we have ranked all 435 House districts on their probability of electing a woman. Um, we're just now in the process. We just went through a new redistricting cycle. So we're just now in the process of getting the new census data um, based on the, the district that were created in 2012. Um, and so we, we hope to continue this research. Um, some really interesting things are happening among Republican women and the kinds of districts where they're being successful. So moving forward, um, you know, we're not quite sure how this is all going to shake out. But it's been really exciting to, to look at this and, um, you know, again, you know, being able to use the model that we've developed to not only predict whether a Republican or Democrat will win, but whether that candidate um, um, is more likely to be uh, male or female and their success. Yeah, one of uh, the most interesting chapters of the book for me was Chapter 5, um, where you go from um, just the, the, the first time running to running as an incumbent. Um, I thought what you discover about incumbency is really fascinating. Um, so, once elected, do women face the same challenges of re-election as their male counterparts, or are they facing a systematically different challenge? You know, the, that was one of the things that really shocked us, too. Because um, the conventional wisdom is that, you know, once you're in, you're, you're an incumbent, and you have all these advantages, and, of course, we know that incumbents win with incredibly high re-election rates, even, you know, in 2010, when the Democrats got, you know, shellacked as President Obama said, you know, incumbents still did really, really well because the ones who knew they were going to lose, you know, decided to retire. Um, and as it turns out that female incumbents actually do slightly better than male incumbents. And again, the difference is teeny tiny. It's not even statistically significant, but it is consistent. And this has been true for several decades. And, again, we're talking about small numbers here. You know, men win 94% of the time, women win 96% of the time, you know, those kinds of things. But this this is consistently true every single election cycle where you have female incumbents performing slightly better than male incumbents, um, which is, is good news. Uh, but we wanted to kind of dig beneath the surface. And as it turns out, that's not the whole story. Uh, female incumbents actually have to work a little harder to hang on to those seats. Female incumbents are far more likely to be challenged in their own party primary than male incumbents. Um, so, they're mo- you know, if they're running as a Democrat, they're more likely going to see a, some, another Democrat challenge them as an incumbent. And then when you look at what happens in the primary of the opposition party, it's a free-for-all. Um, people just seem to come out of the woodwork to have the opportunity to run against a female incumbent in the general. And so let's say you have a Democratic female incumbent running for House. 
When you look at what's happening in the Republican primary, it's not uncommon to see five, six, seven, eight Republicans in that race, where if you had a male Democratic incumbent, you know, in the Republican primary, you might see two, two or three candidates. Um, and so, for some reason, female candidates just seem to draw more competition, um, which is really interesting. Now, part of that story is that you're more likely to see women um, run for the opportunity to run against a female incumbent. So, in that opposition primary, you're far more likely to see female primary candidates running um, for the opportunity to challenge a female incumbent. Um, than you are when a male incumbent is running. So part of that is that female incumbents seem to draw more women into the race. Um, we're not really sure why that is. It could very well be just simply a role model effect. Uh, you know, you see a woman running and you think, hey, I can do that. Um, we also think it has to do, again, going back to district-level factors, that these are districts that are more likely to produce female candidates in the first place simply because of their demographics. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a much more complex story. And so absolutely women do benefit um, by being incumbents, but the story is a bit more complicated. So let's look ahead a little bit. Uh, you mentioned that you're putting together some of the more recent data. Um, and, and what we know about many districts is pretty substantial demographic change going on, which would, based on what you were saying earlier, make more and more districts friendly to women candidates, given that uh, the changing demographics of the country. So what would you say looking ahead about the, you know, the prospect of, of parity in the House and Senate between uh, male and female uh, senators and, and members of the House? Are there ways that you can look empirically and, and say, you know, we're, we're looking at that by a certain year in the future? Um, you know, what is the probability that we'll see some uh, uh, levels of parity that reflect the overall male and female numbers in the population? Well, you know, it's interesting. We've actually did sort of a, you know, back of the napkin kind of calculation. Mm-hmm. And um, the if, if trends typically in, a, in, a, in an average election cycle, you see an uptick of two or three, a net gain of two or three women in the House. Um, and maybe one additional woman in the Senate. Um, and so if you sort of project that out, um, the the U.S. Senate will be half female by the year 2076. Um, my grandma lived to be 110, so I might see that. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> the U.S. House will be female by the year 2156, which I definitely will not live to see. Um, now, again, that's if trends continue. Um, now, a lot of change can happen very, very quickly. Um, so, for example, in, you know, in 1992, we saw this huge spike. Um, 2012 was another year where we saw a huge spike, and we saw some pretty significant gains. Um, and so, and again, you know, when you sort of look at them individually, you know, in a particular, for a particular election cycle, it sounds sort of like, really? What, like, that's not, you know, who cares? Um, but again, if you look at them historically, it's, they're, they're pretty substantial. Um, so things can happen, things can change pretty quickly. Um, and I always like to tell the story of the Minnesota legislature as kind of an example of this. Um, when I grew, I'm originally from Minnesota, and when I was growing up, we had very, very few women in our state legislature. We ranked in the bottom third among states nationally. 
and which was always kind of surprising because, you know, Minnesota is generally seen as a pretty progressive state, uh, but there are very few women. And so finally, one of the women legislators in 2004, um, her name is Mindy Grayling. She happens to represent the district my parents live in, and I've gotten to know her over the years. Um, about 10 years ago, she got really tired of being one of the only women in the Democratic caucus in the Minnesota legislature. So the party was looking for someone to do candidate recruitment, and um, so she finally volunteered to do it, but she told the other party leaders that, look, my priority is going to be to find a female candidate for every open seat that we have. And, of course, the old boys in the party were like, yeah, 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 whatever. Um, and kind of laughed at her and didn't take her seriously, but she did it. Um, she made recruiting female candidates her priority. And in one election cycle, the number of women in the Minnesota House doubled. And now Minnesota is in the top 10 among states in the nation in terms of the number of women in their state legislature. Um, so it, it just goes to show that if, if, it, if party leaders make it a priority, um, change can happen very, very quickly. You know, that's the good news. The bad news is, you know, as you know, candidate recruitment in this country is so decentralized. You know, it's not like the DNC or the RNC can say, you know, we're going to set a quota. I mean, that's just never going to happen. Um, and so it is very decentralized. So it takes a lot of people to make it a priority. Um, but the bottom line is things can change quickly if if it is a priority. Yeah, it's really interesting and such an interesting book. Um, what's up next for you? Uh, you've alluded to some new data collection and maybe some new directions, maybe a, a state-level look at the same subject matter. What's, what's your next? Do you have an, a new book project coming up or, or something else? Yeah, well, right now, like I mentioned, we are going to be updating all of our data to include 2012, and we really want to be refining our women-friendly district model um, and do some more high-powered analysis on that. So that's, you know, we really, we, we feel like we've really only just started to scratch the surface in that kind of analysis. Um, and so we definitely want to continue with that. We also have this project we've been working on on women running under third-party labels, um, which we were hoping to do more with. Um, and then something very exciting that I'm doing is um, in September, I'm going to be launching the Center for Women in Politics um, of Ohio, um, where I'm creating an online archive uh, of all of the women who have ever run for public office in Ohio. So that should be coming in September. Great, great. Well, uh, I look forward to anything that comes out of them, and I hope that you or Dennis can come back and, and talk about the next iteration of the book or the next uh, book, book project. Uh, uh, until then, um, uh, Barbara Palmer and Dennis Simon are the authors of Women in Congressional Elections, A Century of Change, which is published by Lynn Ryan this year. Uh, Barb, thank you very much for your time today. Well, thank you. This was really fun. <laughs>